Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. We were at a little local race, which was nice. You know, it's the winter, so I don't often do that. But also just, you know, with everything going on, it was nice to be out, you know, at a little local race. You ran, a, I mean, little, you ran six hours. So kud- very kudos. Long. Thanks. It was a smooth race day. You did well. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I was actually thinking about this as I was racing. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to confess on the podcast that I definitely did. Like I breached one of the commandments of like racing as per our, you know, consummate athlete rules and regulations around racing where you're not supposed to do anything new on race day. And uh, the night before the race, I was screwing ice spikes into my shoes because uh, we were warned that the course was going to be super icy. And, sure, you know, I, I have never really run in those conditions necessarily despite the fact that we live in Ontario and you'd think I would run in those but I've borrowed like chains from friends on really bad days but mostly just slipped and slid my way through most sure, snowy sure. runs so. yeah I don't know I think I don't know if it's a state of you know the world with environment or what it is but it seems like this like stud topic both in cycling tires uh and then also in shoes seems to be more popular. I don't know if people are persisting more into s- this stuff or, or what it is. It just seems like it's this. There's been a an increase. Yeah, know? that's true. You actually were saying when I ordered the spikes, you said you'd been having several conversations. Three, three in a day. People who had started using studs in their bike tires and just it had transformed their life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will say it transformed mine. Um, I I'll pretty maybe, much needed them at this. Race. I definitely yeah. needed them. Yeah, I'll maybe do a whole post on it and put pictures of how I set up the the studs on my shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they worked super super well. Um, my only my only concern is I think you do need to be careful with what shoes you put them in. I think going back, I wouldn't have used the shoes that I ran in. I would have switched or shoes. Or you thought maybe the placement. No, I think it was just the foam and the the density, the height, I guess, of the foam in my shoes was such that like I was getting hot spots under the yeah, on my feet where the spikes where were. Where the spike was pushing up. Uh, sure. So I think it was just the foam was too compressive, like it would compress too much with everything. So, so I never got like stabbed by the spikes. So like I will make your, that clear. Your Nike four hundred dollar carbon plate shoes. Yeah, carbon plate would have yeah. really helped. Yeah, there. just burn through those shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, it was good to be out. We had a actually a listener actually happened to be there. We had never met him, Steve. So we'll give him a, a shout out. Uh, yes. He was volunteering, which is you know double kudos. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was cool. Yeah, so that's that's been uh, my my week. I think that was that was really helpful, confidence wise, heading into the hundred. Although to some extent, it's also like slightly nerve wracking, where you're like, oh, that was thirty seven miles. Cool, sixty three to go. Uh, by the time you're finished with that, um, so that's it's both like motivating and also just terrifying. Right. Um, but it was good to be on a start line. And our friend Karen, who the one who got the amazing uh, Bruce Trail FKT. If you're in Canada, by the way, pick up Canadian Running uh, this month because there's a really good article about her that great I wrote photos. in there. Jody Wilson's photos mm-hmm. are, you know, I think all of the photos were his, but some great photos. Uh, unrelated. And I've almost lost my, my train of, th- oh, the start line thing. I was very nervous about starting my first race and having it be a hundred mile that's why i did the six hour um and my friend karen who's done many uh an endurance event was just like 
you really don't need to worry about the start of a hundred mile. No, like it's, no. it's not really a thing. So you don't really have the same like cyclocross start line jitters where it really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was just good being out in like a race format for the first time in almost three years for me. So sure, sure. yeah, I was, I was very glad I did it. And the SAS squad trail running crew is, is pretty awesome. Honestly, it was very positive, very fun atmosphere. Um, very grassroots, but still felt well done. Yeah, really well yep. done. So kudos to them. Anyway, um, we'll we'll talk more about that. We actually got a lot of listener questions for next week, so keep them keep them coming. Yeah, uh, just feedback. Really yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't always have to be a question, even right? It can be just you know this really resonated, or you know I hate you, and you know maybe not as many Please of those. Yeah, that. don't send those. But you know if you didn't if it didn't resonate with you, or you have a friend who it resonated with, we know what you mean. But you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It's good to hear from anyhow. Yeah. So thank you for the couple people who uh, sent, you know, this was a really good, you know, they liked the idea of that last one. Mm-hmm. And people who sent questions for the next one. So yeah, keep them coming. Um, but today we are back talking about both sleep and shift work. We, we've gotten a lot of questions about these, these shift work schedules, these, whether it's night shift or whether it's, you know, three days split on, shift. four days off, yeah. split shift, uh, however you configure it. I mean, I, I stand by just so many people these days don't work a nine to five and I don't think it gets talked about a lot. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, if you group in anyone, right, you know, this could be my sister. Mu- mu- well, you know, bakers for sure. Uh, restaurant staff, you know, just people, parents who are getting up. It might not be to actually go to your work, right? It might just be your, right. your shifted a little earlier. Your kids go to bed at six and so do you or something. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, most retail workers aren't working a nine to five. I just think this whole nine to five thing that we've how do I even put it just the story that we tell that most people are on a nine to five I just don't think is that accurate anymore Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I guess it's a convenient thing to base off of but in any case we have Amy Bender back today and she is a sleep researcher yeah uh older fans of the podcast will remember she was one of our earliest uh, episodes yeah Yeah. uh so she has a, a new business she's working with called Cerebra and they're into sleep technologies and both in sort of medical grade. They're trying to get some of these sleep studies you always hear about and see, you know, can we get this to people's homes? You know, COVID and the pandemic helped with this uh, in terms of, you know, the need to, to make it happen. Uh, so it was interesting hearing a bit about that and what she's up to. But we also talked a lot about, uh, again, uh, shift work, but then also jet lag and sort of all these related things. There's also social jet lag, which I thought was the most interesting thing I got out of this was just the idea of how different someone's. Uh, you know, Monday to Friday is to Saturday, Sunday, right? And what's the gap between your latest night, earliest waking versus the other one? What's the, you know, how much crossover? And so she suggests that even if you are getting uh, enough sleep, whatever that means, if there's a big discrepancy, there's actually some, you know, you could actually be seeing symptoms, whatever, you know, different conditions due to that, right? So you might right. not catch it on your, your if you're just keeping track of the eight hours, which so, I thought was really intriguing. So for example, if you normally go to bed at 9 p.m. and wake up at 5 a.m., but then on the weekends, you're going to bed at 2 a.m. and waking up at 10 a.m. Right. That's like right. a five-hour shift. Which, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, we make a huge deal over flying to Europe and the jet lag that comes from that. But make very little of this fact that like weekly we're shifting our schedules by three, four hours mm-hmm. on the weekend. Yeah. So it's very chronic, right? And it may be very routinized, you know, it might be natural to you and in, in that, you know, you stay up later on the weekend and then you sleep in uh, to try and catch up or, or what have you. But I thought it was just interesting that you could 
be otherwise sleeping eight hours a night. But then again, some of these symptoms, it could be, you know, gut stuff or I think depression even was on that anxiety, that sort of stuff. I could be affected by just, just this discrepancy in that circadian rhythm, right? Which Mm. makes sense. I mean, any of these hormone release and stuff is, is timed with that, right? So it's sort of, it makes intuitive sense, but Mm-hmm. sort of head smack on for my yeah yeah no i'm i'm very excited about this episode um yeah i think we can we can maybe just uh, shout out she is at sleep for sport over mm-hmm. on twitter and that's definitely worth checking out if you just want to kind of keep up with all of the uh for the sure. latest yeah, in sleep research and technology and stuff um, and yeah i think she just has like a really good scientific objective view of all of the things around sleep trackers and everything like that um that i i really appreciate so without further ado, uh, let's let's get into this interview with Dr. Amy Bender. Welcome back, Dr. Amy Bender to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Thanks for having me. I think, you know, what's interesting is that I think your podcast was the very first podcast interview I had ever done. So uh, it is so great to be back. Okay. Well, and I appreciate you carving out time. I know you're, you're, you have so many different roles that you're doing. You know, you're still in at the University of Calgary. Uh, doing doing that so you're still teaching and researching there yeah so my, I'm uh, adjunct assistant professor in kinesiology at the University of Calgary so I just recently did a lecture there a couple weeks ago I'm kind of in and out of there every so often but my main role is director of clinical sleep science at Cerebra okay. which is a sleep technology company and we're um, really looking to bring the sleep lab into the home. So study uh, sleep in the home using lab quality metrics okay. and also be able to look at um, sleep quality on a much more accurate level. Okay. And I know there's like, that's a big push, you know, all these wearables and, and things like that. But that was when I was pondering what to talk to you, but I didn't actually know that particular thing uh, that you're into. So are, are you guys sending, you know, this like really this equipment to people or or how, how are you getting this into the home now? Yeah. um, So we're working with partners, home care companies, sleep labs. We're available in Canada right now. So we, people are able to use it on a clinical basis. Um, And so we're working with partners who then, who have devices on site that are able to get it to the patient and study, look at sleep disorders in the home using our device. And so we have a way to measure brainwave activity, eye, eye movements, muscle activity, leg movements, and all of the respiratory channels as well that come with, you know, looking at different sleep disorders. So it's what you would get in the lab, but in the home, um, which you know, sleep can differ a lot in a new environment. So if you're in the lab, you know, that can be kind of challenging and may not be a true representation of what it normally is when you're at home. You know, of course we have a lot of these wires hooked up, so it's not, you know, completely seamless. You still may have a little bit of sleep disturbance due to having some of these wires on, but at least it's in a more realistic environment in the home. And we're able to also do more long-term monitoring. Mm -hmm. So for myself, um, I actually wore the device for 30 days in a row, uh, 31 days in a row. Um, But it was just measuring the mainly the brainwave activity, not the full entire setup. So we have kind of flexibility in the configuration that people want to use as well. 
And we are developing a much smaller device that will be more of that wearable, um, you know, type of aura ring or whoop device. Um, so we are working on that as well. Okay. Well, there's a few directions I want to go with that. The, the first one that strikes me is you must find it, it's like pros and cons, I guess, of like, if you put someone in a, I'm thinking of like a bubble in a, in a, you know, a lab, you're taking, you know, their spouse and their dog and the noise from the, the train out of the equation. So I wonder, like, do people have better sleep sometimes in the lab? Actually, people who have insomnia, so people who really struggle with their sleep, um, struggle with falling asleep and staying asleep, actually do sleep better in a new environment because there's not those associations of, I hate my bed because I can't sleep, you know? Right. Um, so there are a few, a handful of people that do sleep better in the lab environment, mainly those people with insomnia. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, there aren't the, there isn't the dog sleeping on the bed. There isn't your partner snoring when you're in the lab, you know? So, um, but I still, I, I default back to, it's a more realistic environment. So it's, it's nice to have some of those factors when you're studying sleep in your home, because it is more realistic. Right. And that may be, I mean, sometimes I guess it would be frustrating, but you'd be like, yeah, the main problem is that your dog's waking you up. <laughs> you know, what is this jiggling around every, you know, 15 minutes? Exactly. Mm. Okay. So then you're, you're saying like you're having to wire someone up with a, a host of different things, you know, measuring all these things. So it, it is different than what we might get, you know, certainly from like a, a strap or a, a ring or something at this point. Um, Absolutely. Um, and the other the, the way that we're able to measure sleep in the home is the patient is able to apply it themselves. So we have videos that is on our tablet that helps record the data, but they're also able to access these videos that tell them how to set up the equipment. And our EEG is looking at frontal activity. So it's on the forehead, which we validated against all of the other channels. So if you were going into the lab, you would have six EEG channels. You'd have frontal, central, occipital, but our device, we're able to just make it on the forehead so that the patient can apply it themselves. Um, I was going somewhere with that. I don't well, I mean, I think there that's, was a point to that. I, yeah, I don't, like, how are they I, doing it at home versus like a whoop strap, I guess. Right. Like where, yeah. Um, yeah. Related to, um, the other wearable devices. So, you know, we're talking clinical grade here. So this is how you would measure a sleep disorder. Um, when we're talking about aura ring, whoop, Fitbit, those kind of things, those are more consumer, consumer grade products. Um, and you know, I, these devices are good. I think it's a way to bring, sleep to the forefront and be able to, for people to start prioritizing sleep by using these devices long-term. Uh, however, you know, we do have to question a bit about the validity of these devices and currently, you know, they're pretty good at, at detecting how much sleep you're getting. They have a little bit harder time, maybe with the time it takes you to fall asleep, depending on the device, because if you're not moving and the device is only looking at movement, um, it could be calling you asleep when you're not. But then when it comes to sleep stages, I think that's where people get excited, overly excited about, oh, the device is telling me I have deep sleep. It's telling me I have REM sleep. 
you know, which over the long term, you can do some of these interventions like alcohol to determine how that's impacting your sleep long term. But when we look at those numbers on a raw level, a lot of the sleep stages are not very accurate when it comes to these devices. And so I hear a lot of people telling me I'm getting, you know, I, even on Twitter, I, <laughs> I hear it all the time where people are like, oh no, the device is telling me I only have, you know, nine minutes of REM during the entire night. And I'm just like, that's not accurate. If we were to hook you up with EEG monitoring brainwave activity, I, the picture would be a lot different. There would be much more REM occurring for this individual. So we have to be careful when we're looking at kind of the raw numbers. I think they are useful across time to see how some of these interventions are helping. But when it comes to like, this device is telling me I have 10% REM. What is wrong with me? I should be having 25%. Right, right. But we have to take it with a grain of salt. So then, um, not I don't think we need to go too far down the wearables pathway, but you know, when you're looking at that, so you think now we're getting closer to where, you know, the the total time might be a usable, you know, metric that someone might, you know, over time look at, not stress maybe over a single day, but is is that something that you would say is probably getting close to being usable data? Absolutely. Yes, they are. Uh, there was a recent study looking at seven different wearable devices and they found that for total sleep time, so sleep duration across the night, they were pretty accurate for sleep onset latency. They were pretty accurate how long it takes you to fall asleep. But when it comes to the sleep stages, they were not very accurate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and I know that stuff's all progressing, which is exciting too, right? Like you say, it's get letting some of these things that, you know, used to be, you know, really high end, uh, you know, laboratory type studies, maybe weren't as accessible to everyone, you know, depending on the healthcare situation, um, you know, in the future, you could see maybe that some of this, the stuff you guys are working on might be more accessible. Right. And that's, I assume that's like your mission statement largely. Yes. Yes. We want, I mean, a lot of these wearable devices, they aren't actually looking at brain wave activity, which is where sleep is occurring. And so our device, uh, it based on our metric of sleep quality, and we call it the odds ratio product, we do need a good quality EEG signal to get that proper data. And so we are, we are requiring a forehead uh, monitor in order to look at the EEG activity. So there are, you know, like dream has a headband right. that you wear, that's looking at EEG activity. Um, there's other devices out there as well. Ours will ask, definitely, like, is it, a, yeah. it's like a, a headband or like, could you make it like an eye shade? And then we get like a two in one where the, you know, you're getting the darkness. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the, most of what you see out there is a headband and some of it is even almost like a hard plastic. So it isn't maybe the most comfortable. So we're looking at, um, maybe a head, like a cloth headband, potentially we're looking at more of like a sticker across the forehead, obviously like comfort is important to us because we don't want it to disturb your sleep. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at some of those different options, but EEG will definitely be a part of our device just because we need that to get our sleep quality metric of ORP, which is super exciting. Like we're finding, you know, relationships between 
patients coming in with a lot of sleepiness, they're coming in complaining of sleep quality. And if you were to compare their complaints to the traditional sleep stages and the Rex Schaefen and Kale's N1 and 2 and 3 REM sleep, uh, we don't see very good relationships with their complaints and the standard sleep stages that we see with, you know, or a ring or even during a normal laboratory sleep study. Right. But when we're comparing that with our sleep quality metric, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing validation in some of these patients in that uh, their complaints are aligning with our accurate measure of ORP. Okay. So you're saying, you know, this, this rating might be a little lower and then someone could have a symptom of, of sleepiness or falling asleep or, you know, what a host, I guess, of symptoms. It's probably wide ranging, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yes. Well, that's, that's very interesting and something to watch. Um, I'm curious, you know, maybe the last uh, idea around that particular subject is, you know, you were wearing part of this, you know, apparatus, apparatus, uh, for, you know, a whole month. Now, did you find that you got used to sleeping with, with it on, uh, your head or, you know, and what did you find? Yeah. So I was wearing, um, kind of our standard, the product that we have available right now. And we're, you know, we're looking at miniaturizing that for the consumer later on, but, um, I, I did find, you know, at the beginning, it took a little while to put on the electrodes, you know, it was um, a bit more challenging, you know, you have to look at the videos, but as, as time and time goes on and you do it multiple times, it was very, very quick for me, like less than 10 minutes to put on the device and make sure the signals are good and, and you know, get the recording started. Um, you know, uh, I do sometimes sleep on my stomach. So that can be a bit challenging because in this study, we were looking at the brainwave activity, but we were also interested in heart rate variability. So we had two um, ECGs, which then led into a chest unit. So it was almost like a little remote control that was attached to a belt. And so sleeping on your stomach can be a bit more challenging. So it may not be, you know, directly on your stomach, um, but maybe a little bit more to the side. So I did get used, I I did get used to that as, as the study went on. Um, So again, it's not realistic as like the absolute perfect scenario where you aren't sleeping with any equipment on, Uh, there has to be a little bit of give and take. And so, um, you know, it, it, it prevented me maybe from sleeping on my stomach more than I normally would. So now what did you find then after 30 days? Was there anything like, was your life changed? Was there any magical transformation? Well, we're, we're looking into the data right now. So this study was, um, in around 20 employees, family and friends of Cerebra. Um, and we have a lot of rich data, within this study that we're able to really look at some lifestyle factors. So caffeine, alcohol use, we measured exercise. We measured how often the person went outside. We also looked at reaction time in the morning and the evening. So we have, uh, and you know, we haven't even scratched the surface on heart rate variability either and stress as it relates to sleep quality. So, we, we're in the beginning stages of looking at this data. I think one thing I can share that was pretty interesting was that 
a lot of times we saw pretty good stability and sleep quality within individuals. So meaning, you know, if you have a good sleep quality that would tend to occur night after night versus someone with poor sleep quality would tend to have poor sleep quality night after night. And so we saw, um, within individuals, the sleep quality was pretty stable, but they were much different between individuals. Um, and so that was kind of the general pattern that we found. However, we we're seeing a lot of little outliers, uh, within that. And so what we're really interested in looking at next is how do some of these lifestyle factors impact some of those outliers. So for example, if I'm generally a good quality sleeper and I have an outlier here and I have an outlier there where I'm getting poor sleep, what is occurring during the day that could be impacting that? And we have that data to look at. We just, um, you know, need to get on it. Right. Yeah. That's always the thing with data. We can collect all these things. Now we have all our rings and watches, but what do you ever do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. So it's, you know, most people are, I think that makes sense, right? We all sort of are existing and, and there's sort of this baseline, right? They talk about that with HRV too, right? Where there's sort of your normal, but then there's like, oh, that was an extra bad night of sleep, right? Or a really good night of sleep. And why does that happen? Right. And I guess mm-hmm. that's, that's the golden nugget. That's what we're, we want to know when you have a really good sleep, why was that? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, using a, like getting this device out so that we can start collecting a lot of that data and get enough data to use AI machine learning to be able to really personalize someone's sleep Mm. and really, you know, for you, you may be a fast metabolizer of caffeine compared to me. And so caffeine may not impact you as much as it would impact me. And so I think that's the goal is to be able to personalize uh, sleep quality and really understand for an individual, these are the factors that hurt your sleep. These are the factors that help your sleep. And the caffeine's an interesting one. I mean, all of them are potentially things that you wouldn't you know, you, you might say like, oh, that night wasn't amazing, right? Or it was like a little different, but you might not be super sensitive to like, oh, you know, I had that extra cup of coffee and then I was down say 10 points. And if those 10 points are valid 10 points, that might be that like, that's the thing where we're like, yeah, that extra cup of coffee actually is costing you. It's just, you know, it's not that you're up all night, right? But it's like this little difference, right? That, and I think that's, that's the intriguing thing is if that accuracy of that sleep score is there, mm-hmm. Then, like you said, that it's easier for the tech, the AI, the whatever, uh, to to pull that out and say, like, whoa, hey, why don't you go outside and see the sun today, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, good. That's that's awesome. So, like, reminded me, uh, you know, you've been on our list to have back on, but I, I've seen on Twitter, you you know, you were traveling a bit, but you also were a big, you know, really against the the time change. That uh, what is that called? Daylight uh, savings time. Yeah. You seem very adamant that this is a bad idea. So, do you want to <laughs> just lead us into the first that? I guess, like, what's wrong with uh, shifting the time? Yeah. Um, well, so number one was shifting the time in general, what we see during the spring forward where we lose an hour of sleep and we transition to daylight saving time, uh, we see 20% increase in heart attacks. We see increase in accidents. We see increase in even suicide. Um, you know, so it's, it's a big deal and it's, 
it's not just about that hour of sleep loss, you know, the Monday after daylight saving time, but it's also about the mismatch in our circadian rhythms as well. So, you know, our body's kind of used to getting up at a certain time and then we adjust that and we have to get up earlier. You know, it, it really can wreak havoc on, on our health. And, and that's what we see in the research is some of these impacts on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday after daylight saving time. Right. Um, which can be problematic. So ideally we, we don't want to switch the clock and ideally we want to have the clock on standard time, which is more in line with our biology and more in line with our health. And the reason for that is that morning sunlight, morning light helps alert our body that it's daytime. It helps set our circadian rhythms for the day. And so, you know, um, sometimes times there are times in Alberta where if we were on permanently on daylight saving time, that there would be times in December in I think Prairie, uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta, where the sun wouldn't rise until 10, 10 30 in the morning, which is just, it's not good for our biology because right. our, our body needs to know that it's, it's, it's wake time. And so that in particular, that morning sun is really important for our biology and it's really important for our sleep quality at night. And so regardless of, of what time we're on, um, it's really important for people to get outside in those morning hours to help set our circadian rhythms, help regulate our circadian rhythms. And we know that the light outside is just, can be as much as, you know, even a hundred times brighter than I think maybe even a thousand um, more than our uh, indoor lighting. Okay. And and so that's, that was, I was not a hundred percent on the, but that's it. So the standard time is the one that keeps it more in the the beginning of the day. It'd be darker. Maybe when we're leaving work at five or four o'clock, you know, probably four o'clock here. uh, Cause we sort of go try and get out for our walk at four because it's dark by five, but you're saying that it would actually be even earlier potentially, I guess but then at least we'd have sun in the morning, right? So someone might be able to go for a run in the morning, get some sun on their eyes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So standard time allows more sunlight in the morning, which, um, you know, naturally then requires a little bit more darkness at night. So it gets dark earlier, but we do get sun earlier. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, then you, you know, can go to bed at seven. I'm always like, okay, <laughs> exactly. cool. It's, we were coming home from somewhere the other night and Molly was like, it's so late. Like, I think it's seven 30. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some interesting camping studies out there as mm-hmm. well. I think at uh, university of Colorado Boulder, uh, one of my old lab mates was actually working on some of those studies. And it's interesting because they, they didn't allow artificial light. They didn't even allow flashlights in some of these studies and they were, went on a weekend backpacking trip. And so they were just, uh, using fire walking all day. Yeah. Yeah. Walking all day, you know, and, and it was so fascinating. Are you talking about the one where the blood glucose and like they check, like just everything improved basically. I I don't think that, no, I don't think that they were looking at blood glucose necessarily in the study. They were just more looking at melatonin 
Um, so uh, is a marker of our circadian rhythms. Right. And so they studied their sleep in more of the natural environment, the artificial light, you know, at night, access to these electronic devices. And then they studied those same individuals in a backcountry environment with no artificial light. And they found that their circadian rhythms were advanced an hour. So a lot of this artificial light at night can keep us up at night, right? You know, and so when they were in that backcountry environment, they were going to bed earlier, but their, their biology, their circadian rhythm, their melatonin was being released earlier as well. So it was this like transformation of optimization of circadian rhythms, uh, just by being outside and in a natural light environment. And so that's something, you know, we could all go outside in the morning or whenever the sun actually is coming up, depending on your time change. And then, uh, you know, just trying to keep the lights down and the computers off and the, you know, we've all heard this stuff, right. But that's sort of the idea, I guess, right. Is trying to go with the nature, go with the, the sun. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So we've had a bunch of questions, uh, around sort of this idea of, of, um, you know, night shift or split shifts or night work, you know, this sort of stuff where we're sort of messing with, you know, the circadian rhythm. Um, do you have any, you know, thoughts about how someone, you know, aside from the like stop working night shift or, you know, normalize <laughs> your stuff, you know, I guess we've, we've touched on a few of these here just now, right. Things you might do, but do you have any other, you know, advice or things you've seen maybe in some of these studies you've done uh, with people who are working night shift? I mean, we can't, it, it's, it's so tempting to say, just get off the night shift, you know, but uh, 20% of us out there are shift workers who, you know, we have um, emergency situations. Um, doctors need to be on call. They need to work the night shift nurses, you know, they're it's, it's a standard of our way of living that we have to have night shift workers available for us during the middle of the night. Um, so the best thing to do in that instance is to shift your circadian rhythms to more of an evening type permanently. And so a lot of the, the problems that occur with night, night shift workers is we're, we're shifting back and forth, um, you know, which, which is a natural part of our society. You know, you have your days off, you want to be awake when other people are awake. Um, so the best piece of advice is to, if you can, which is not realistic to be on a permanent night shift, uh, schedule that is not a realistic piece of advice. So then it's to make our circadian rhythms later permanently. And so that means even on your days off, you want to go to bed later. Uh, you want to go to bed, you know, maybe midnight, maybe even later if you can, if you're able to swing that type of schedule. And so go to bed later, wake up later. If you're a night shift worker, even on your days off, if that's possible, because then there's less misalignment between drastically shifting back and forth. It's like your body is in, you know, more of that later type of state all the time. And so it's not as much of a mismatch when you're um, working that night shift. So that would be the first piece of advice is to try and go to bed later, wake up later. If you are even on your days off, the second piece of advice would it be really important to have a, a good sleep environment when you are sleeping during the day and you are working those night shifts. So have it like a cave cool, dark, and quiet. You may even want to get even like a chili pad, 
uh, which is like um, a cooling type of mattress topper, um, having really good earplugs, having, you know, um, the thermostat down, having a blackout blinds, an uh, eye shade, all of these different things to simulate what it is during night when you would normally be sleeping. Um, but obviously that's during the day because you're working these night shifts. So that's an important point is having a really good sleep environment and then trying to strategize with napping. If you are able to nap on the night shift, you know, if you do get a 30 minute break to just even take a quick 10 minute nap, if you can, uh, will help improve your alertness throughout that uh, night shift. So having napping, taking caffeine strategically. So, you know, not necessarily having a cup of coffee at 5 a.m. right before you're about to get off because that caffeine is just going to be in your system. Uh, even the half-life is four to six hours after that consumption. So being smart about that, but obviously being safe, you know, there are a lot of accidents that can occur on the way home, you know, so definitely trying to be obviously safe as well, right. but yeah, um, having a good, um, basically to summarize what I just said, I'm going to bed later, even on your days off, having a good sleep environment, and then also napping strategically and using caffeine strategically. Okay. And I guess there were, would there be maybe, you know, in regards to that, like morning sun, you'd be, you know, you'd wake up, I guess, you know, late afternoon or midday, depending on if you're off or not in that scenario. So you try and get the sun when you wake up still. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, let me, let me comment on that because um, we're wanting to, and this applies to jet lag as well. So if we're traveling West, we want to delay our circadian rhythms. We want to go to bed later. We want to wake up later and we want to get sun in the evening. So, and block light in the morning. And so if I'm, um, let's say I'm starting my night shift tonight, I would not want to get sun in the morning because that's right. going to help shift my circadian rhythms earlier. I actually want to block sun in the morning. So I want to be able to sleep in, in that dark environment. Um, you know, maybe wear sunglasses if you're waking up in the morning. And then the key here is to get light in the evening, you know, so getting lots of light in the evening before my shift, you know, taking right, a nap right. before my shift. And then the following day, do the same thing. When I wake up in the afternoon from that night shift, after that night shift, I want to get light in the afternoon and try and block that light in the morning. So you so might even do like sunglasses in the morning, like in the actual yes. morning, when you're done your shift, you're finishing, the sun is coming out, but you're going to bed. Yes. So you're maybe trying to just minimize exposure to sun, even yes, though it's probably tempting exactly. to see the sun occasionally, right? Um, exactly. That's yeah. what you want to do, but we have to, you know, we have to be safe as well. Um, because you're just, I I've actually worked night shift. I, you know, I was started off in the sleep field as a sleep technologist and I would work night shift. Occasionally I was working at a sleep deprivation lab and I was the main sleep technician. So I was more training our research assistants to work at night and monitor our participants sleep. But I was also working in a clinical setting where a sleep disorder center, where I was working at night only, you know, maybe three, four times a month. Uh, so it wasn't a big deal, but, um, 
even my, with myself working those night shifts, I know how challenging it can be well, that on sounds like the a study drive right home. There. I thought you were, <laughs> were going to say you were double blinding that, you know, you had your research assistants and they were studying the people, you know, in the, in the bubble and who you were, you know, in the sleep study, but then you were studying them <laughs> because they were sleep deprived. <laughs> that, that would have been nice. That's a right. good idea. Yeah, they never know. Uh, one of the last things here I want to touch on sort of related again, there's always all these, cause the, you say night shift. And then the other 80% of the populace is just like, ah, I, you know, I don't work night shift, but you talk about this concept of jet lag in an article that I pulled off your Twitter that you were just recently did, I guess as well. So um, I'll link to that, of course, cause it's a very, it's a very comprehensive article actually. Um, but social jet lag is something you talk about there that caught my eye that, you know, some people, they go work nine to five. They're going to school early. They're getting up and doing their workout before work. And then it's the weekend, right? And, and we see a similar problem here with the social jet lag. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so social jet lag is the mismatch between your off days and your on days. And so usually that's the weekend. So we're working during the week. We have school during the week. And then we have the weekend, which is our off days. And so the more that we're mismatched between our weekday and our weekend, the more health problems that we see. And this might've been related to uh, glucose tolerance as well. So the, and what we typically see in the research is about uh, two hours on average. So if someone is the midpoint and the way we measure this is based on the midpoint of their sleep. And so let's say a person is going to bed during the week at 11 PM. They're waking up at 6 AM. So Monday through Friday, they have this type of schedule. The midpoint of their sleep would be about two 30 in the morning. Um, versus let's say the same person is going to bed at 1 AM on the weekend, getting up at 8 AM. Um, you know, their midpoint would be four 30 in the morning. And so there's about a two hour discrepancy in the midpoint of sleep. And so we start to see issues when we're hitting that two hour mark and we start to see metabolic issues. We start to see even anxiety, depression, increasing the more social jet lag we have, the more mismatch we have on the weekends versus the weekday. We see issues with performance, more accidents. So social jet lag um, can be can be pretty problematic when it comes to health. And so we do want to try and strive for keeping a consistent sleep schedule as much as possible and not altering that by more than 90 minutes. And so um, that's kind of my general rule is we you know, I, I do think that we can make up for some lost sleep on the weekend, but we don't want to be extreme in how much more sleep we're getting. Right. Right. And could you game that by going to bed a little earlier and getting up a little earlier and keeping the midpoint or is that, are we cheating then? You know what I mean? No, no. I think, I think you can make those, those little adjustments and there is a lot more that research that needs to be done (laughs) in this area. It's a a rule of thumb. Yeah. And Uh, even in our, even in our own data, you know, in the study I was talking about previously, we're, we're, we're starting to find some relationships between the variability or, um, the variability in someone's sleep. So how, inconsistent their bedtimes and their wake times are and how that relates to sleep quality. You know, it's typically worse sleep quality, which has been replicated in the research. So, 
um, really, it's a good piece of advice is to try and keep your sleep schedule as consistent as possible. And, um, you know, maybe supplementing with a nap on the weekend, which can still contribute and reduce that sleep debt. But, um, that way you're not sleeping until noon and really messing up your circadian rhythms. Right. Right. And it's one of those things that on, on the surface, you know, someone might be sleeping their eight hours or something like that, right. In bed for the eight hours or, or which have you. But again, if it was really all over the place, right. Like it could be very, quite variable, right. They're out for hockey one night of the week and then they're, you know, whatever out on Friday night partying and then, you know, what mm-hmm. er, early morning workout on Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you could, you could see that being quite variable for someone. And then not really knowing like, oh, I'm feeling all these things you're talking about, right. Blood glucose, all these things like that could be you know, a piece, but then just looking at the sleep duration or, or might, might not catch that. Right. So it's an interesting metric. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, there's actually been some research to show that in people getting equal amounts of sleep, we're talking about the same sleep, sleep duration, but they have differences in their consistency of sleep. So they'll take one group who is more consistent sleepers go to bed at a similar bedtime, similar wake time versus the group that is very, very inconsistent. And, um, the study I'm thinking of in particular is in college students. And they found that those who were more inconsistent, they got the same amount of sleep as the other group, but their actually academic performance was poorer in those who were more inconsistent. They had more anxiety issues, more mental health problems. Um, and it's probably related to just our brain and our body don't know when to be awake and when to be asleep. And there's all these hormones that are occurring, um, you know, and then we alter that, we alter the wake time, we alter the bedtime and it can really impact that. Um, but I mean, life happens too. I don't think we have to be perfect. I, I actually curious myself, you know, applying the 80, 20 rule to this, um, what would we see? And so I think we just need to do the best we can at keeping a regular sleep schedule and to try not to alter it more than 90 minutes if we can. Yeah. That's probably the week to week, you know, standard that you, you keep. And then there's, you know, there's a Christmas party, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's these things, right. Or the, the early workout that's worth going and checking out or something on the weekend here and there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that's, I didn't expect to get that one. That's an interesting one. I hadn't thought a lot about. Uh, so that's the one I'll have to watch more uh, with people I work with as well. Uh, and I guess on myself too, <laughs> we'll have to practice that. So again, I mentioned your Twitter, it's still sleep for sport, the number four sleep for sport on Twitter, right? Yeah, still there doing the tweeting. And then zebra.health is, uh, if anyone was curious about what you guys are up to, that's the website, I believe for, uh, did I say that? Cerebra. Cerebra. Mm-hmm. I was like, that didn't sound right. Uh, so cerebra.health. Uh, is there any other domains or, or places people can connect with you online? I'm on Instagram as well. So people can catch me on Instagram. It's at sleep for sport. And then I do have a website, sleepintowin.com. I'm still kind of working on that website, um, but it is live right now. If people want to check that out. Um, I have a newsletter that people can subscribe to, which I haven't done one yet, but um, I'm planning on it. Uh, So people can check me out at sleepintowin.com, which Again, we don't want to sleep in too much, but uh, it was kind of a catchy name. So I, I jumped on it. Fair enough. I mean, it lets you talk about it, right? So it's good. 
Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I look forward to that. We'll, we'll post the link to that new website just to hold you accountable on that. Uh, okay. Or to that newsletter. Cool. All right. Thank you, Amy, so much for making time for us today. Uh, I hope everything goes well with Cerebra and, and everything you're working on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great uh, coming back. Thanks for bringing me back on. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.